Welcome to Tranos and the Lived Experience, a podcast confronting current events, politics, comedy, and calamity, all from the perspective of a trans titaness. She's a verbal black belt, skilled in the art of roasting, the hellmouth, doomsayer, CEO of the Amazon position. Here's your host, Cameron Ellen Terrell. Welcome to Tranos and the Lived Experience. I'm your host, Cameron Aileen Maharet Jarrell, a.k.a. Tranos. Say that shit with your whole chest or face the wrath of a thousand paper cuts. I'm, I'm bored. I don't have anything else. I, I, I wanted it to sound intimidating, but it didn't work. This is Tranos and the Lived Experience, the show that earned me the moniker Auntie Iroh. Why you ask? Because I keep those leaves from the vine. Today's episode, like every episode, is brought to you by the meeting of marijuana and music. Today's strain of choice, it sounds a little bit abrasive, but it gets you high at a 20%. It's a mixture of lemonade, gelato 42, and London pound cake 97, aka cheetah piss. The strain has a pungent cat pissy like smell that isn't much in common when it comes to the highs. As far as the terpene profile, cheetah piss is a funky, just like cat piss, like aroma. It's earthy. It's really pretty to look at, by the way, too. And it's it's super weird. The name gives it all these weird like qualities, but like it's it's just a great high to have. It's one of those highs you can walk around during the day with. You don't feel too melted into the couch. Um, but let's get into the episode. Oh, oh, I almost forgot. I almost forgot. Um Today's uh, song of choice is Strapping Young Lads Love. Today's episode is entitled The Devil Inside. And people are like, what the fuck are you talking about, Cameron? Well, um, I've never really spoken in length about my past identity. Most people believe that it's a wrestling identity. It is not. Uh, Gabriel Saint existed before I was a professional wrestler. How it works. Like, uh, I, I really wish that I could split myself in the past self and current self and have a conversation just so you would get the, the full perspective of how Gabriel Saint came to be. I've said it in past episodes. I was around like four when I realized I was different than other kids. I was around nine when I realized that there was an urge in me to to be feminine. That is that is how I identified in the world. I knew for certain that I was more feminine than any of my brothers or cousins, male cousins, through a lot of living around them and living in the 80s and hearing like just like violent homophobia and and not knowing exactly what I was. Did that make me gay? I didn't even know like what I was attracted to by nine. There came like these times where I would start to kind of drift off uh, early, early signs of disassociation. Uh, life for me at nine uh, with anxiety and fear based upon like the knowledge that I was different but couldn't explain it to people. Life for me was really um, blotchy and blocky. There's large parts of my childhood that I don't remember. And it's not because of age. It's because when tumultuous times or conversations that were too hard for me to handle would happen, I would leave. And when you leave, you have to like leave in my mind. When when I disappeared or disassociated into myself during those times where I just didn't want to be around because I was tired of acting or tired of 
learning not to be myself, someone had to stay in instead. I couldn't just be a, a sitting drone. So in my mind's eye, that's around the time that Gabriel Saint was created. Earlier names, Gabe, Aries. Uh, I don't have disassociative identity disorder. I wasn't diagnosed with it at that point. I was diagnosed with it before, but I don't think that's the truth. I don't think that's really what it was. For lack of a better word, the medical community, when dealing with a trans child in the 80s, had no idea that trans people were real. Um, we were still seen as oddities. So when you explain to a child therapist that you become someone else to cover up who you really are, they just kind of read it as like disassociative identity disorder. Uh, no, I, I had a hand in crafting who uh, Gabe Saint would become. Uh, at first, it was a cowl and a mask and then it just became a person that I had to be all the time it was just a role that I had to play all the time but that role did have friends and a life and favorite music and a way of doing things that was not my own I think what it was was playing the character for so long the name changes the iconography trying to find out like what spoke to me what 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 could we use to protect just thinking back on all of that, like Gabriel Saint definitely was a personality that I had to wear that, for lack of a better word, kind of rubbed off on me. This is a really hard subject to kind of like have a conversation about because each trans person's relationship with their past self is different. Uh, I would describe my past self as kind of like a Jekyll situation that got out of hand. There are parts of me to this day that are very reminiscent of Gabriel, and that is because I had to mimic these things so long that I forgot who I was for a very long time. I pushed Cameron down for decades. So the relationship that I currently have uh, with the identity of Gabriel Saint, like now looking back on it, is at first when I started transitioning, I was resentful. I was mad at the world that I had to create such a thing. I had to create this thing to wear just to be accepted. And now looking back on it, like I was never accepted. Gabriel Saint wasn't accepted. Gabriel Saint entertained people. Gabriel Saint was funny to people. Nobody really cared about like when he was hurt or when um, he was alone or when he was calling for help or when he was even trying to explain my arrival. Uh, and you're like, oh, now she's talking in third person. But that's how I feel. I feel like I was a passenger while Gabe Saint was allowed to pilot this thing for a very long time. And now I have to inhabit a used form and learn how to pilot it for a different reason. Like this thing was built for a different reason. When I was around like 16 or 17, I was hyper effeminate, like very long hair. I couldn't really help it. Like it was something that I couldn't help. Um, I had long hair. I played rock music. I hung around boys primarily just to keep up subterfuge. But I really wanted to be doing other things like around girls. Like I got, in the, I got habits that I like to this day, but they weren't my pursuits at first. They were things that I was like, oh, if I do this, then that'll make me look more masculine. After a time, like around 16 years old, after a time of just going through a lot of heckling and being picked on for how feminine I was, I was told, oh, you used to be a boxer. You're super athletic. Why don't you find another physical outlet? 
And before that, I went back to boxing. And I just realized I didn't have the fight in me anymore. I became a boxer. Another thing that I pursued for the sake of masculinity. Was I good at it? Yes, I was. Was my heart in it? No, I I was doing it for all the wrong reasons. I was doing it to prove that my father and I was strong. He didn't care. I was doing it for my mother so that I can prove to her that I could achieve things on my own. Uh, she didn't care. I wanted to do something for me. I, I, I thought about going back to boxing would be it. And I just couldn't find the avenue to get back in. And I couldn't find the fire to want to do it anymore. And, and like you're talking like, oh, this seems like you were doing it for a long time. I was. I started boxing when I was eight. I didn't stop until I was around 15. And I was stopped because of weird medical circumstances that I will not get into at this time. I started like hanging around like high school boys and like we talked about things that we liked and I was interested in professional wrestling because it was really one of the only hobbies that my father and my brother and me were able to sit down to and not rip each other's hairs heads out well I mean they would eventually like get to the point where they would kind of ridicule me because I was like the girl on the boys trip so that would happen every once in a while not so much on my brother's part it was more on my dad's part like he would try to get my brother to like fall in line with picking on me because that was just the role that I was supposed to play. I was the weird effeminate kid that he didn't want. When I started hanging around wrestlers, we started talking about what we would be when we were wrestlers. And I had this completely different idea of who I would be. Like I was like hell bent on being like a gay character and like being open about my queerness and, and using that as my way to come out. And when I first went to a wrestling school. It was NMW. It was owned by Gary Steinmiller. So like literally like the first time that Gabe Saint became a professional wrestling personality of uh, the first time I was there, I was the only black kid. There was lots of other kids there. Uh, shout out to Dominic Frignoli watching me like bust my ass and move um, wrestling rings and do everything that he wasn't forced to do um, only to get my first match against him. And for him to say right in front of me, right in front of Gary Steinmiller and the trainers that were there at the time, you know who the fuck you are, that he wasn't going to take a pin from a nigger. Shout out to you. Uh, but back to the story. I walked in with Mr. Steinmiller. We talked for a while. He told me how much the tuition was. I'm poor as fuck. I decided in that moment that I had to do what I had to do to make my dreams come true. I started selling weed. I was homeless at the time because I had been kicked out of foster care for aging out. So I was like living on the streets. And I'm like, how am I going to get the money to be a wrestler? Like, how am I going to make this thing happen? It's the ultimate masculinity to me. I'm going to achieve this thing, come out, prove to everybody that gay people can do these things. And um, then I was introduced to everyone in the locker room. And after being introduced to several of them, including Tiger Smith, I sat in the locker room for a while and just wanted to absorb what was going on and see what my environment was as a child who has been assaulted and has trauma. I've learned to play the position of watcher uh, to make things sure things are safe. So while that's happening, I'm sitting in my mode, um, still having disassociation spells when I feel uncomfortable. I found that I was disassociating immediately because the word faggot was thrown around literally a thousand times that day. There was so much toxic masculinity. Believe me, I grew up around drug addicts, but I had never seen drug addicts unchecked. Like my parents had this way of checking each other when they were around us, when they were too high. Um, and they rarely, like my dad was, my mother's never done drugs in front of me. My father has. 
like he has several times and just the rampant amount of drugs uh shout out um uh you know what i, I didn't want to do this because i'm not that kind of girl but but i'm gonna do it anyway shout out to barry hardy he was one of the trainers of uh, the first couple months that i went there he used to get in his full gear he was like a jeff jarrett gimmick back then so he was like literally biting or ripping off his entire gimmick and he would get in the full gear. We wrestled in a post office. That's where we trained. We trained in a post office. This man, the first hour of training would, would be him getting in his gear, uh, carrying around this big, like, almost like like um, Kodak-style briefcase. And he would make us do drills. And while we were doing drills, every once in a while, if you looked over, you would catch very hardy <laughs> snorting cocaine off the briefcase. I saw lots of drugs. He was one of the people that was a trainer for a while. He eventually like got like nixed out because of his activities there. I don't know where he went, but he I, I guess he got clean and like moved to Florida or some shit like that. I hope he's not dead. All right, well, that's enough about him. <laughs> um, the interactions with other wrestlers and like the interactions with people on the street and stuff like that in my real life were so toxic when it came to coming out that the whole plan about me telling everyone that I was gay immediately that was x'd out for about mm, 16 years <laughs> um when i was first around these guys i was about 140 pounds i was lanky i was around like five foot seven really like long like hair long nails i wore like leather skirts when i wasn't at wrestling practice and um i was really gothy but hanging around them in the locker room, I was constantly being made front of for it, being made front of for having a lisp, um, being made front of because my voice was really high at the time. Like I was around like 19, now around like 19 years old, like joining NMW. I had trained in some weak ass places in North Carolina, but they those places kind of fell apart. So I don't really count it in my training, but just hanging around and being immersed in a culture so toxic and then coming home and being around people who were super toxic towards like LGBTQ people made it almost unbearingly glaring to me that I couldn't be who I was and that I was going to have to reside to if I wanted to succeed in being a professional wrestler, if I wanted to succeed in getting myself off the street, I was going to have to reside to being something much stronger than I was. Like I said, as a child, the idea of Gabriel was always there. But the allowance of Gabriel taking over didn't happen until like my early 20s. It was a conscious decision. I decided around like 17, actually, like that, like if things were going to be better, I would have to push down these feelings that I had. I would have to find girlfriends. I would have to get married. I would have to have babies. I would have to do what I had to do to be air quotes, happy. Happiness to me meaning stability back then. I had no stability at all, not as a child, not as a young adult. Um, the only way to seize it was to like just become something different. And it's now high school's over. I don't have the stigma of being uh, the emotional kid who has no idea what their identity is. Um, so I had the chance to create an identity. And I took all the things that I thought were masculine and I put them in a mental pot. And then I took all the personalities from, from people around me and I picked from them how I would respond to things, who I would be safe around, how far I would be willing to go to stay undercover. I started gleaning those things from everyone. 
Shout out to Kevin Dunn for giving me a sense of loyalty. Uh, shout out to me, Marcos, uh, for giving me um, a keen intellect. Shout out to H.C. Uh, Loke for giving me resilience. Shout out to Tiger Smith for teaching me how, to, how not to act. Shout out to J.C. Money for teaching me that you can change. I took from all of these people little pieces of them and then I amplified them to become my personality. Now, how did I manage to walk through a room where people are having bar stew conversations and know nothing about sports? Very easily. It's simply nodding and staying quiet. If you allow a man to talk about his interests, you don't have to talk. If you allow them to sink into their interests enough, you won't have to talk and you'll learn a lot about their interests and then you can mimic those things back to them. So I learned early on to man manipulate situations with silence, to be an attentive listener. One of the greatest things I have, like character-wise, that people will say about Cameron and Gabriel was both of us are great listeners. I'm not going to learn anything about you unless I hear you, unless and I can take from you and I can, I can mimic those things back to you. And if I do it enough, if I'm paying enough attention, then it becomes a part of me. Sounds strange, right? Like, I, you're like, oh, this bitch is smoking too much weed. I mean, you might be right, but this is me explaining the relationship. There was a lot of resentment because of what I had to do. I had to lie constantly. I had to lie about my interests, their interests, liking their interests. I had to lie about foods. I had to lie about my attractions. I had to change the way I walked. I had to change the way I talked. I had to change mannerisms. I had to, at times, like faint berserker or like big brooding nothing. Like I had to think that a lot. So then, then you get the representation currently of people who have known me since the beginning of this of that I seem standoffish. Uh, yeah, it's a defense mechanism. If I feel uncomfortable around you, I just go golem. Like stone golem works. You can use that out in the wild. Stone golem does work. If you just sit and listen, you'll get what you need to feel safe. And once you feel safe, then you can thrive in that space. Uh, I still had to face racism. I still had to hear homophobia all the time. And um, with each year and with each outing, because I, I did at first where Gabriel Saint like a cowl. When I was single, I would go to wrestling shows, be Gabriel Saint for a few hours, come home and be big gay cam, wear dresses, do my makeup, smoke weed by myself. I hung out by myself a lot. A lot of people thought I just disappeared on the family because I had some weird like neg against them. I don't like I just felt safer alone. I didn't feel like I would be safe as myself around anyone because the world had shown me that that wasn't a thing. But when I got into relationships, I found that, like, I didn't have a space to take Gabe off. Like, around, I want to say around, like, we're at 24 now. At 24, I'm starting to feel like I'm spending less time as myself and experiencing things that I can't completely recall because... I am completely stressed out. I am in the midst of a, de a wild depression. I'm suicidal at the time. And I'm also like completely masking who I am to the point where I don't know who I was anymore. It started to manifest as a mental breakdown. Like I would be super emotional and like I would be irritable. Like, cause it was like wearing a suit to the beach. It's the only way I can really describe it. It was like wearing a wet 
business suit, like wool houndstooth business suit. It was like wearing it out in the sun consistently all the time. I, just, I felt like my skin was crawling. Each lie I had to tell like, hurt hurt me a little bit more, like jaded me a little bit more, made me hate myself a little bit more. Because at the end of the day, like I'm trying to build, I, at the time was trying to build relationships with people that I could not be truthful with. I couldn't be truthful about what I had been through. I couldn't be truthful about how I felt. I couldn't be truthful about who I loved, my interests. I often got made fun of for being the black, air quotes, dude who was in the sci-fi and Shakespeare because uh, one, because I'm black, I'm not supposed to like those things. And two, because I'm a man, those things are too soft for me to be into and surprise guys i'm not a man highly intelligent black people do love those kind of things there are lots of black theologians who love listening to shakespeare who love like old english or reading about the scythian like race and and then and the nomads and stuff like that it, it wasn't just me i took a lot of things that were said to me to heart whenever i was questioned about my queerness i would take immediate offense to it and then I would attack. Like I said, shout out to JC Money for showing me you can change. But technically JC Money and Tiger Smith outed me when I was 25. And this is where I'm losing more control and losing more time and spending lots of time as Gabriel Saint. By this time I had been Gabriel Saint full time for about three to four years. Um I'm dating a girl um, that I, I dated for seven years, her name was Shauna. And our relationship suffered because I couldn't talk to her. I couldn't tell her things because she didn't even feel safe to me. And I know like, it sounds like a jab. It's not a jab. I didn't tell her that I was going to pursue being a trans person because I didn't know. I told Tiger Smith and JC Money, who at the time were like, supposedly some of my closest friends, that I was bisexual. And then they used it as a weapon against me once they got upset. One well, less JC and more Tiger did. Tiger would talk in length about me to other people, which, like, don't try to play like you didn't, nigga. I know somebody gonna tell you that I said what I said. And don't try to play like you didn't do that, nigga. And if you want a spot on the show where we can sit here and hash it out, we can, but you're gonna have to step into the space with truth. And the truth is, is that every opportunity Tiger Smith got to uh, defame me or share things about me, he would. Anytime that me and him had a disagreement about anything, he would throw that I was possibly gay. Hint at it. Tell other wrestlers it. He even like tried to create another wrestler with the name Gabriel. Shout out to my man Ish Jones for being a real one, period. Uh, we we all we got. We know it's up. This is the point where I'm disassociating a lot more having like literal out-of-body experiences at this point where i'm just like not functioning outside of a wrestling ring the, the hard years where i couldn't work i couldn't keep a job because i couldn't i couldn't focus i couldn't put my all into what i was doing i, I felt sadder and sadder each day i felt like i was spending less and less time as cameron and then I realized around 26 when 
my former partner and me started talking about marriage, that Cameron was something that I was going to have to give up forever, that I was going to have to bury Cameron forever just to survive. Now it's not about happiness anymore. It's about survival. So what happened in that instance was me and my girlfriend at the time had a conversation about marriage in the future. Our relationship's already rocky at this point. I've lost um, family members at this point, and like I had to deal with our relationship was ruined by alcoholism and uh, lack of communication. And that, that, the, that lack of communication can, can totally be misconstrued, or not misconstrued, but can totally be read as my fault. You can't marry a person that you can't be 100% truthful about who you are with. Did I, do, do I love her? Yeah, I still do. I think she's a, a great person, and I think that she has been through some shit and came out the other side. And that might include the relationship with me. Gabriel Saint was not the nicest person. And it wasn't like a violence or anything like that. We never fought or physically touched each other. But there was just a coldness in me. There was a coldness in me. Like I didn't allow myself feelings because feelings were feminine. Because looking back on like how I built this character that became a creature that became like the pilot of the Cameron Gundam was I built this thing from the pieces of broken men. I didn't have really like positive role models around for very long periods of time. Like H.C. Like Loke is a positive role model in my life, but there's a large amount of time where we didn't talk to each other or see each other. So that, that wasn't a reliable source. So I took what I could from him, but I wasn't able to maintain it the way that he did. I took from Dunn and I wasn't able to maintain it the way that he did because there wasn't a connection anymore. I wasn't able to see how he would act in everyday situations, how he would respond in these certain situations. And I was literally living my life like wondering like, okay, what would this guy do in this situation? Because my first instinct is to do something that's totally not considered male is to respond a, a way that's not considered male. A lot of times I, I roared my way through crying fits. A lot of times, like, I shut down and, like, just cut people off because I was so hurt and could not say that I was hurt because that's a weakness. That's what I was taught. Now we're at, like, 29 years old. 29 years old, I'm still in the same relationship. It's getting worse. My wrestling career is getting a little bit better. At this point in time, I'm a NWA New York champion. Not really supported the same way as other champions. Not really treated the same way because I'm, I wasn't really seen as a complete person. I was seen as a character who was always on all the time. Like people believed that Gabriel Saint was my wrestling character. Gabriel Saint was my default from trauma. I wasn't taught uh, skills that um, I wasn't taught the things that a man would possess. Even though I was conditioned to be male, I wasn't really taught what a good man was supposed to be or a, a, an in-depth person was supposed to be. Mind you, my father doesn't have a singular trait or skill that I could name because his life was so singularly focused. I learned that the singular focus life was the life that we were meant to live. And my dad's singular focus was drugs. My singular focus was wrestling. I was too scared to do drugs. I had seen too much to do drugs. I was too smart 
to do drugs. I know I smoke marijuana, but I don't do drugs. I've never tested cocaine. I've never tried um, mescaline. I've never done any of that wild shit. There's instances in my past where I've done like shrooms or like acid, but those are one-offs. Like I'm not, I was, I'm, I'm not built for the singular drug addict life of just functioning for a chemical. So as Gabriel, I became singularly focused on professional wrestling. It was my everything, even when the, everything else around me was falling apart, like not being financially stable because I couldn't keep a job. My relationship being rocky because I was like low key, like hiding myself while also being tethered to someone who had problems of their own. You know what I mean? Like, and it's not like I want to reiterate. This is not an instance where we are tearing down my ex-partner. That's not what's happening here. We're just stating the facts. She had things going on rooted in her own trauma that we didn't even talk about. And I had things rooted on in my trauma that I didn't share. So our relationship was doomed. There is no villain in the story. Our relationship was doomed. I'm sure that she cared about me and I'm sure that I cared about her. But the existence of Gabriel wouldn't allow me to share a thing with her or be open with her about this. At 30 years old, my relationship is now falling apart. It is in full-on descent. There's lots of arguments. There's lots of distance. There's not a lot of talking. Um, they're not even wanting to share the same space with each other for like the last, like, the next year, year and a half. We didn't even really talk to each other. Uh, if we weren't arguing, we didn't talk. I'm starting to hang out with my friends from high school a little bit more, remembering parts of myself and remembering like, oh, there's a shutoff switch. I, I, I have, shout out to Chris, Chris Coles. That's my mom, technically. Although the, the mother that brought me into this life as a, a late night gay, we started hanging around each other a lot more. We started talking about things and like I was able to have conversations with Chris about how I felt and like who I was. And because Chris knew me before the birth of Gabriel Saint or the 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 transformation happened, like Chris was able to, to call me on bullshit. You, you didn't used to be this way. Like what was the drastic change? Those kind of questions, what's going on? Why are you always so upset? Why do you feel this way? Do you investigate these things? Those are questions that Chris Coles asked me. And for the first time in my life, somebody actually asked me about my well-being and my mental state and they left me a space to feel safe in. I talked with Chris for several years after that, just like letting them know, like I like I was feeling more comfortable with like talking about certain things, like talking about like going to Pride and how I used to do drag and how I, I am sort of attracted to men is what I was saying back then. I'm sort of attracted. I don't know. I don't know if I would do anything with one, which was a lie because I was doing shit with him already. Um I was able to vocally say it and not feel ashamed. Not feel shame, feel more like Cameron. And when I turned 32, my relationship ended. I was out on my own. And I had to like face the reality of like, now that you're on your own, you don't have to do X, Y, and Z anymore. You can be vocal about who you are. You can tell your friends who you are. You should feel safe around them. You've been around them for this much time. And I was wrong. I mean, I was wrong. 
when I look inside, uh, and I say there was a long time where there was this resentment, and here's where the resentment changes. I declared myself a trans person out loud when I was 33 for the first time. Uh, I told my mother. And after telling my mother, this weight came off of me. And that weight was like Gabriel in its entirety. I was done with being Gabriel, or some of you might have known him as Dre. Not a lot of you would call me Jarrell, but like a lot of you knew him as Rel. He had his own nicknames. He had his own sets of friends in his own timeline. That's what happens when you like assume the life of someone else for years. And I think when I finally came out and was able to let go gradually, I started to see physically less of him. But I still get glimpses of him in mirrors. I still hear his voice every day. When I open my mouth, I'm not a crazy person. Let's not use crazy. That's wild and inappropriate. I'm not um, hearing disembodied voices. The, the voice that I'm currently speaking to you in is a voice that was designed for someone else, was manufactured for someone else. Uh, my voice was much higher, was way more breathy, way more feminine, way more lispy. This is something that I had to learn how to do for a job, which meant I had to do it to perform as a male around a bunch of other males. It's a, it's a Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing for me. Like the gateway to becoming Gabriel Saint was very rooted in, in trauma, but my transness was not. I had to build this broken person to protect a trans child. I had to build this broken person to defend a trans teenager. I had to build this broken person to chase a career that trans people wouldn't have been allowed into back then. Um, it was just a culmination of discrimination and heartbreak and trauma that created Gabriel Saint. So now when I look back, I don't look back on Gabriel Saint with a resentment at all, but a sadness. When you think about like your past, you see yourself. When I look into my past, I see several different people. All of those people lived and breathed for that period of time. And technically what Gabriel experienced was a death. A slow death and a long birth. I spent the betterment of 16 years as Gabriel. And it was like really rough on the psyche because parts of me had to be replaced to make room for him. So there's always going to be a space in my head where Gabriel exists. And it's not the ability to switch back and forth because, like I said before, we are two different entities. We we share some experiences at crossroads where I was there and, and, and allowed myself to be present in those moments. But for the most part, I spent 16 years sleep, 16 years dormant. And the resentment that I felt for Gabriel was based in that. I spent so much time asleep because you had to exist. And now looking back on it, it's I spent so much time asleep, so you have to be tired. There's a reverence now. I, I celebrate the existence of Gabriel Saint. Even though a lot of people don't know a lot about him, they only talk about him in wrestling forums in this particular area. Not to like hype my fucking self up or anything like that. But Gabriel Saint was much more than a professional wrestler to me. Much more than a gimmick 
or a character that existed between bells. Uh, Gabriel Saint was protection, was safety. Even though it might not have been the healthiest form, uh, I was not healthy while exhibiting or, or, or experiencing the life of Gabriel. It wasn't all fun, but it kept me alive. It kept me, <laughs> for the most part, in spaces that could be considered sane. I, I don't really want to argue about sanity and a person who has to disassociate for 16 years. But when I look back on Gabriel Sainer, I hear his voice and it reminds me. Or I see a video of him and it reminds me. Or every once in a while when I see, in a, I look in a reflection and I see him for a small second. I know that he had to exist for me to exist at this age. I came first, but he lived our life. Kept me out of trouble, kept me out of danger. Withstood things that normal people wouldn't be able to withstand, sleeping outside in the Rochester winters as a homeless teenager, eating from garbage cans, finding ways to get money and food, finding ways to find us help, circles that would accept us for the moment. Like all of that stuff was a hustle that I could not create. I couldn't create that. I had to create a person to do it. My confidence and bravado. I think the first glimpses of Gabriel Saint was the first time I ever, and this sounds super weird. The first time I ever knocked a person out, I was like nine. That was a small hello from Gabriel. The last time I felt like Gabriel or I spoke or moved or did anything as Gabriel was the last wrestling match I had before transitioning. I haven't felt completely like him. I haven't surrendered or disassociated to him in so long because he is no more for now. There's that sounds circular, but like I think I'm sure I'm sure I'll be able to look back on this episode and listen to it and and be able to tell you more as I feel more comfortable. But there's no hatred for who I used to be. There's a reverence I remember being a child and being like, how am I going to get through this? I have no one, like knowing that no one was going to back me up, watching how other family members who were queer were treated, watching how society treated queer people. I kept asking myself, like, how am I going to make it through? And I remember that night, like kind of like casting a circle and like asking like the gods, like, send me protection, send me stability, send me a strength beyond my own and that Gabriel answered I'm able sometimes to sit in silence and have conversations there's a spiritual tether between us we're the same because we have we share the same body and we inhabit the same brain we share the same mind and I think that being able to have a communion uh with Gabriel every once in a while is very healthy as as of right now he represents the only masculine energy that I have. I don't see him as uh, a monster or a burden. I see, I see him now as what was needed. And that's refreshing. I think I want to have more conversations with other trans people about their relationships and, and how minds might differ from them. Mine is very rooted in a spiritual place. And I know a lot of people don't understand. I'm a witch. I'm a witch. I believe that you can have communion with spirits. I believe that things can inhabit you. I believe that you can create things around you and you can manifest people. I believe that Gabriel Saint was just one of my first 
really bad attempts at manifestation. We've been talking for about 45 minutes now. I'm going to give my mouth a break and your mind a chance to wrap itself around what the fuck I just said. <laughs> so you know what time it is. If you hear me coughing, you hear click, click, be a fucking adult about it. I smoke weed. Yeah, there's a certain amount of reverence that comes with I, I celebrate the passing of Gabriel Saint every year. There is a space in Rochester. If you're familiar, if you're a Rochesterian and you're listening, Gabriel Saint is buried in White Lady's Castle. That is where I buried him. I did that in part to give myself a physical place to visit because I view humans consider themselves a singular soul. I'm a human being, but I'm trans nonetheless. And my spirituality commands that a personality so willful and so its own had to have its own soul. So it had to have a place where it rested. So that's what I did. I went to White Lady's Castle, and I'm not going to tell you exactly where it is, but I picked a space that I thought Gabriel would like. And I buried um, trinkets from us over time. My black patent leather wrestling boots that everyone's been asking, where did they go? The blue pair of Gabriel Saint shorts that I wore, my Kawada shorts that I wore, and they were my first professionally made pair of gear. A bracelet that uh, I bought myself as Gabriel Saint. So I bought this bracelet for a girl that physically didn't exist i bought a bracelet for cameron when i was younger and i don't understand why i did it but i do now and i still have the bracelet but i buried the the bag the bracelet came in and a charm from it in the ground i buried it <laughs> my high school diploma because it doesn't have my name on it um i buried my high school diploma and it's just a small time capsule like a small space where like Gabe can be remembered because Gabe doesn't have a social security number or a birth certificate, but I do. It's just a little bit of, I think, the self-care for me. My self-care is tied up in taking care part of every part of me, taking care of every part of me. And Gabriel is such a big part of me that it was just fitting. It seems like hella symbolic to somebody else. It might not be. It might be a waste of their time, but it wasn't for me. I... Can't say I enjoyed my time as Gabriel Saint, but I can say uh, I'm here because of it. And with that being said, this has been Tranos and the Lived Experience. I'm your host, Camrayin Eileen Maharetjarel, a.k.a. Tranos. Say it with your whole chest or be haunted by the ghost of Gabriel Saint. And this was Tranos and the Lived Experience, the show that was a pallbearer at a funeral for no one. Bye.